Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Uh, Listen, if you uh, were with us last weekend, you know last weekend here at Mercy Church was by uh, any stretch of the imagination. It was just fantastic. It was a great weekend together. Uh, There was just a great spirit of celebration. And y'all, I feel like I'm seeing that in our church right now. Just a great spirit of celebration. Um, Ever since I preached through Acts 3, there's this promise to the church in Acts 3.20 that a season of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. I've been praying that for our church, and I feel like he has just been answering it. Um, Seeing the way that you guys that we're celebrating together on the weekends. I mean, this place was slam-packed. Our Providence Road location was slam-packed last weekend, but it's beyond that. Uh, It's the way that this renewed sense of a commitment to prayer uh, that I sense in our church, and we're even kind of exercising that again this coming uh, Thursday with our day of prayer and fasting. I see it in the way you're caring for one another. It is such a joy to see uh, and hear the different stories of how you're caring for one another, and if nothing else, Man, last weekend, uh, if there's this wave of a season of refreshing, I feel like we got to see a little crest of it last weekend when we saw 14 people um, baptized over the course of our Sunday morning. Can we just pause for a second and thank the Lord for what he's doing among us? Man. Y'all, the Lord is moving, and I think a big reason that he's allowing us to be a part of what he is doing is our willingness to put our yes on the table um, for what he wants to do through us to bring about this mission that we're on together to see a gospel awakening happen here in Charlotte that gets carried to the ends of the earth. Um, Y'all listen, keeping our yes on the table has meant going down a road of sacrifice for our church, hasn't it? I mean, time and again, I feel like that's what the Lord has called us to. I mean, even when he gave us the Providence Road campus, uh, the move that y'all just last Last two weekends, there's something in me. I loved it. I loved having everybody together over those three services. It was so much joy. I mean, my instinct is to say, let's just be here all the time. My heart was so full. I left um, I left that weekend going, man, my heart's full. My voice is gone, right? But I am ready to run through a wall with you guys for whatever the Lord has for us. I just felt it. And then I realized um, just for, uh, as I was praying through it, that um, you know, we've been saying time and again that we want um, the Lord to bring uh, this mission, to bring this awakening about. We believe it'll be one person at a time. And so we've said, uh, each one of us, let's begin praying, who is your one? Who's that one person who's far from God, but close to you? And I realized that my one wasn't here uh, the past two weekends, and especially last week. And I realized if he was, there wouldn't have been anywhere for him to sit. Right, I mean, just the, the way the weekend went, uh, we had office chairs all the way to the back of the room and everything. Um, and I realized, y'all, that we were just slap out of room. Um, and what if 
you had gotten to bring your one, and everybody, I know some of you did, but everybody tried to bring their one all at, all at one time. And so our elders are, are praying and asking the Lord, Lord, help us to facilitate this movement that you have for us, um, however we can, with our facilities so that we could all, y'all, here's the thing I started praying this week. What if over the next 12 months, every one of us got to kneel down by the tank, the baptism tank, as our one was baptized, uh, as a sign of the new life they found in Christ. Man, why does that seem like a crazy prayer? That should be a pretty weak, we should see that as a, a prayer of little faith for what the Lord can actually do, right? And I don't even wanna start praying just for that. I wanna pray for your, my one's one, right? Lord moves in his life, and then the people that he knows, you gotta get in on this. And we want to have the facility space that allows the Lord to move, allows us to say yes for that. You know, one of the coolest things for me was as people were coming out of the water, it was there was always somebody right over in the chairs right beside them are ready to jump up and get a soaking wet hug, right? Because they're like, they didn't care because they were so emotionally invested into this person. They saw what was happening. And that's what happens. The gospel goes forward through relationships. And we want to be able to make room for that. I'm going to talk, listen, I'm going to talk a lot more about this on October 27th. You should be at church every weekend, um, but October 27th is Vision Weekend, and that's specifically a day we're going to address it a lot. You guys are a wonderful church to pastor. It is a joy to be a part of whatever this is that the Lord is doing through us, um, and I just, I thank you for the spirit of encouragement and unity as we move forward together under what the Lord is doing. I want to address one step we're taking this weekend. Um, we are one church that if you're new with us right now, we meet in two locations. Um, right now, for the very first time, our sermon is being viewed live um, in both of our locations during our 9 a.m. service. Thanks to the hard work of Jack Guthrie, our tech director, and everyone on our AV ministry team, we are now able to stream, live stream our sermons over to our Independence campus. So, Providence Road, I'm with you right here in this room, and this little existential comment that I'm making right now, but that's what's happening, and that's our plan going forward for the 9 a.m. service, and as Pastor Richard just shared with our Independence Campus, um, you are receiving this in real time, so I can do anything, I can start dancing, they can't cut it, okay, we're in it, right? And then what will happen, we'll continue the same um, kind of protocol that we, I won't start doing that, okay? But we'll uh, do the same thing we have been doing for our 1045 service. I'll be preaching um, at, our, um, at our Independence campus, and Providence Road will receive the sermon by video as it has up to this point. Uh, listen, I, I just want to say all that. I want you to know, we believe this is the best, most faithful next step for us to continue moving forward as one church in this mission to see a gospel awakening in our city. God's word is our final authority and the preaching of God's word is driving our church forward. And so for the sake of unity together, we sit under the same preaching of God's word on the weekend. And this also frees up the rest of our pastoral team and staff and elders and everyone else to devote themselves to bringing about this disciple-making, missionary-sending church that we believe God has called us to be. All right, with all that said, if you have more questions, please um, contact me or any of our elders. We're happy to talk with you uh, through this next step we're taking, but um, we are gonna, are gonna stop that there and say, let's get to work. All right, we got some work uh, to do. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning, so let's get in it. Um, Acts chapter five, Acts chapter five. If you're newer to Mercy, we're in a series of sermons where we're looking into the book of Acts. The title of the series we're in is You Are Sent. You Are Sent, but that you is both singular and 
plural. We were going to title the series, Y'all Are Sent, but some of you are newer to the South. We're trying to ease y'all in to it, okay? So we try not to use it everywhere. Um, But what you're going to see, the theme that we're seeing time and time again, is that the people of God, this first church, it's it's not just a a building that they come to to receive services. This church is a people that are bound together by a shared belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and bound together through, in the supernatural way, through God's Holy Spirit. And then God sends them out into their community to love one another well with the love of Christ and to kind of live among the community so the community can see and hear as this church testifies to what the Lord has done, right? That we Christians, we just say, God has moved among us. Uh, That's what we saw last weekend. God has moved. God has moved. He has saved us, freed us from sin. And we just want to see that happen in the lives of more people. Those baptism last, last weekend, that was just a fresh declaration, again, that we got to see God move again. The joy of freedom in Christ, y'all. It's the single greatest thing in the world, and we want to share it with others. And Acts is showing us what we said uh, last weekend is that when he moves, he doesn't move just once. He doesn't move just once. And so we said, all right, we're going to see the back half of Acts chapter 4. What happens is they see God move, and then they go and they pray and say, God, we've seen you move, and we believe you're not done. We believe you'll do it again, Lord. That's what we believe you will do. That's what we're going to do on our prayer night on Thursday. We are going to just fast all day. I hope you'll join us in that. And then we're going to say, God, give us boldness to go carry out your mission because we believe you're not done. You're not done. So today we pick up Acts chapter 5 and we're going to see him move again. But it's a very different move. So far in the book of Acts, we have seen God provide. We have seen God save. We've seen God do some miraculous things. We've seen him heal but as we come to Acts chapter 5, what we're going to find is the church fall into a moment of failure and tragedy. And we're going to find in there a warning from God in how he moves. I think a warning that is sobering to us as we walk through it. So let me walk you through what happens. We're going to cover the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5. And then I want to talk about what this should mean for us. All right? All right. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now, the reason that but is at the start of the sentence is because it's a contrast to what is happening at the end of Acts chapter 4. Look, whenever you're reading the Bible and you see something that seems to be connected, go back and dig in and figure it out. Guys, we don't just skim the Bible to check something off our list. Go in, figure out what's going on there, right? So let's go back to the end of Acts chapter 4. Here's what we see. We see in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, talking about the church, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the proceeds of what was sold, watch the order of what happens, sells it, bought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And this was then distributed to each person as any had need. This is what happens when the gospel gets a hold of a group of people. All right, they became the most generous people the world had ever seen, providing for one another. There's this beautiful common concern for one another. As brothers and sisters, these Christians had been awakened to this truth. Philippians 2, that their greatest need had been met in Christ and that Christ, who was rich for their sake, became poor, right? Laid everything aside for them, even laid his own life aside for them. And so what happens, this is what I, way I've heard it said is, Christians, when they start to finally understand the gospel message, is they loosen their grip on their stuff 
and they tighten their grip on one another, right? They start to love what God loves and God loves people. And so they loosen their grip on their stuff. They tighten their grip on one another. So they start selling their possessions, just modeling what Christ has done for them. That's the context of Acts chapter five, joyful generosity happening in the church. So now read, read verse one and let me add verse two as well. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Looks the same. However, he kept back a part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. This action looks like what was happening around them. That's Luke, our author. That's his whole point, to show us that two people can do what appear to be the same thing. And yet there's, there's one more difference, right? Everybody over in um, Acts 4 is selling their possessions and bringing the proceeds, which means all of the proceeds and laying it at the apostles' feet. But then Ananias and Sapphira bring a portion of it. And the problem with bringing a portion of it is only that they wanted it to look like they were bringing all of it. So verse 3. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you have planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. Listen, Ananias and Sapphira weren't under any obligation to do this. The property belonged to them. Even in selling it, they didn't have to give all the proceeds. What they chose to do is say they were going to give it all, 100%, to God when they weren't. And what Peter is saying is this isn't generosity. This is pride. It's you wanting to appear to be something you're not. And notice the, um, go, go back in that verse, notice the filling language in verse 3. Up to this point, filling was reserved for what the Holy Spirit did to people. Right? And Peter is saying, instead of allowing the Spirit to fill you, you are allowing the very enemy of God to take up residence in you. Satan is filling him too. You are granting him access to this place that's only reserved for God. That's what's leading you to lying to God. Of course you would lie to God. You've welcomed in the father of lies. And maybe you didn't realize this, Ananias. Maybe you think this is trivial, what you are doing. But it's not just that you've lied to people. You are lying to God. Verse five, when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. I want you to just let that sink in for a second. The second he, this is not like a heart attack. We're not gonna try and explain this away through something, right? Ananias lied, and then Ananias died. All right, that is just plain, simple reading. Luke doesn't offer an explanation right here. In fact, he actually takes it on an even heavier turn. Verse seven, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell this land for this price? All right, let's pause here for a second because it's not the main point of the sermon, but it is a reality enough. I want to bring this up. So let me ask you to our women here today, what should she have done here? 
I mean, there is a clear, good teaching in Scripture that wives are to submit to the sacrificial leadership of their husbands, and this leads to our flourishing when that happens, when we take on those roles. Now, submission and headship are very important, um, and it will be beyond our scope for today for me to go in further into it. But the question is, what should she, what's she supposed to do here? What would you have done here? You and your husband privately agree to misrepresent yourself. You show up. This question's asked. He is noticeably absent, nowhere to be found. Here's what I want to say. Submission to your husband never means following him into sin, ever. Now, sometimes it may mean following him into a mistake. Like you both pray about this decision. You come to different decisions about maybe a job and where you're supposed to go and everything. You don't agree about it, but you say, okay. But it never means following him into sin. And I say that for both of you, because sometimes a message can be communicated uh, to women that when you get married, you're supposed to like relinquish all responsibility for your life and just follow your husband. But listen, a day's going to come where you stand before God for your life. Like Sapphira, you'll be called accountable and and held accountable for your choices. So don't ever substitute your husband for the Holy Spirit. You're responsible for your obedience to God, for your involvement in church, for your generosity. And if the Lord should give you kids, you're responsible for your part and whether or not your kids are in church. And then let me say to all spouses and really to all of us, your sin clearly never affects just you. That's one of the things we see here. Let me keep going. Sapphira does answer tragically. She says, yes, for that price. Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. Now that you've heard this, I want to ask a few questions about this that help us kind of draw out what we're supposed to learn from it. I think questions you, any reader will probably ask when they first see it. And the first and obvious one to me is, why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? You know, as a reader, when I first saw this, um, it was like that moment where you're watching a movie or you're reading a book or you see your friend's Instagram page, but they've already posted this thing, right? And you just go, no, right? Like mistake, don't do that. Why would you do this? But the reason they do it, when we start to peel back, it kind of looks a little familiar even. It's twofold. They love the praise of people and they love their money. And since they see people giving stuff away and they see this generosity is being celebrated, they think, well, we want that. We want that praise, right? But we also want our our money and our stuff. How can we have both? Well, we'll keep our stuff and we'll lie to God's people so that we can get their praise. This is direct contrast. Look at it. Direct contrast to what's happening in Acts chapter four at the end. The Acts chapter four, the people are filled with the spirit, not like, Ananias and Sapphira, they're filled with the spirit. And so what do they do? They give away their stuff in order to bless others. Ananias and Sapphira, filled by the very enemy of God, they hold on to their stuff and then they deceive others. See the difference there? Their lies though, y'all, you gotta see this, are symptoms of a much deeper problem going on in their heart. Think of it like you um, would think about now that we're getting into cold and flu season, like how um, if your forehead is warm, right? Uh, that's, uh, that's a symptom, right? You have a temperature. Your temperature is a symptom of an underlying infection. 
You can't, you can treat the symptom with ibuprofen with a cool rag, but that's just temporary relief from a symptom. That's not curing the underlying problem. Sins like lying are symptoms of the deeper problems that create those lies. Y'all, for me, a deep problem I've dealt with for years is the one that I see here, the need for the praise of people, right? And that underlying problem leads me to do things like lying and, and deceiving, misrepresenting myself, or maybe working way too hard and just totally disregarding the Sabbath in order to maintain an appearance and reputation that people will celebrate. The sin problem underneath that need for praise is that I wasn't satisfied with the love of God for me. I was going through the motions of my faith without allowing the power of the love of God to actually change me. Once I began walking in the love of God, walking filled by the spirit of God, this beautiful thing happened. I stopped needing the praise of people so much. God's love really became enough for me. And oh, this is massive because, listen, I still let people down. I still have that tug in me to want everybody to like me. It's not that I've stopped caring about people altogether. Actually, I'm able to do my job a whole lot better now because I'm less focused on what people think about how I care about them and more focused on just actually caring for them, right? Almost all sins are symptoms of this root sin down underneath it all, of unbelief. You don't need to just quit lying, to use our example here. That's just the cool rag. Eventually, the effects wear off. You need to deal with the underlying problem. This is one of the things I hope you will get out of today. You need to grab hold of the love of God for you. You are either filled with the Spirit, which leads to a heart filled with joy and a life marked by generosity, or you're filled with the enemy of God, Satan himself, which leads to a heart that loves money, the praise of people, and leads to manipulation, envy, lies, and all kinds of anxiety. Here's a second question I think we got to ask, at least a natural one to me reading it. Why does God strike these people dead? If I was new to the Bible, I would think this might be a little bit of an overreaction from God. Like, does the sin of lying about the amount that you're giving justify an immediate death sentence? I mean, yeah, I mean, they didn't do it right, but they were still giving, right? Like, isn't that, isn't that at least good a little bit? If you're feeling this way, let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, first thing you see is these people have been really close to the activity of God. Uh, New Testament, there's a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. N.T. doesn't stand for New Testament. That's just the way his name worked out with what he did in life, okay? But it says that, what he says is whenever you see in scripture, whenever you see people close to the activity of God, the seriousness of their sin uh, gets laid bare. It, it increases. This is why whenever someone used to approach the temple, every single blemish, they had to go through this huge cleansing ritual because any blemish would be magnified as they get closer to the presence of God. It's why Moses had to take off his shoes when he saw the burning bush and approached it, right? It's why Isaiah saw God in a vision and immediately falls down, lays prostrate and says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. Your proximity to God intensifies the seriousness of your sin. Another way to say it is just makes it more transparent, lays it bare. And Ananias and Sapphira had seen God move as a part of this church in an unbelievable, undeniable way. The spirit of God was moving here. And this act, in this act, what God is doing is he's protecting his church from the enemy's attempt at attacking it from the inside. What you also see, in this is a demonstration of how God feels about all sin. 
in the death of Ananias and Sapphira, we see a foreshadow of a future judgment that God is going to bring to all sin. And if you believe that God was too harsh with Ananias and Sapphira, you do not understand the holiness of God. The better question is not why did he take their lives, but why has he spared ours? And the answer is the grace of Christ, which leads me right to our last question. What should we learn from the death of Ananias and Sapphira? There's a few lessons we learn. The first, and this is the one that I should recognize, Mercy Church, that this weekend is a a heavier message because there's such a warning from God in in this passage for us, but a good one um, because we find ourselves, you'll see, we'll land in the grace of Christ. But this first first lesson, I think, is um, the big one. You can hide from people, but you cannot hide from God. I recognize how impossible it is on my own strength and any of our pastors and elders on their own strength um, to distinguish between someone who comes in here uh, on a weekend and is genuinely um, walking in the spirit, genuinely dependent on God, going through it, yes, dealing with sin struggles, but really working through it and leaning on the grace of Christ. It's really impossible in some ways for us to distinguish between that person and someone who walks in with entirely different motives someone who is pretending. Ananias and Sapphira were clearly actively involved in their local church. They were probably faithful members, but deep down, a love of God was not guiding them. It was the love of the praise of people and of money, some things deep down that they had never really dealt with. And that led them to an awful place where they had become imitators outwardly doing the actions that would make them appear to be followers of Christ, but all the while internally pursuing empty desires that would ultimately corrupt them and lead to their destruction. Y'all think this is often a sign of someone who's never been truly converted by God. We think that talking about the grace and glory of God are the same as actually experiencing them and being transformed. So let me ask you, are you hiding anything? What are you hiding? See, there's this moment in the book of Joshua where a guy named Achan hides some things that he had stolen. They're in his tent and they're under some stuff and he thinks, yeah, it's gonna be okay. Nobody's gonna look. You know, it's only one tent out of thousands of tents. He's one guy out of hundreds of thousands of people. So he goes about his routine, uh, you know, not worried at all about anything. There's no way he's going to tip anyone off because he's so set. He knows the routine. He knows the game to play. To everyone else, he looks like a regular part of God's people. But in secret, he's directly violating God's command. He's hiding. And as the story goes, God reveals Achan's sin and Achan is put to death. Very similar to what happens here. And here's the scary part. Ananias and Sapphira knew God knew. They got in the church worship service. Word was preached about an all-knowing God. At the end of the day, they just, they didn't care as much about that as they did about the opinion of people and the love of money. Those two things so consumed them that they forgot God's opinion was the only one that really mattered. Is this you? I'll tell you some ways I see this. I see this in dating couples who have no problem sleeping together, but would never live together. That way they can pretend to live holy lives. Hey, we don't want to live together. We want anyone to think that we're compromising our integrity. 
but you still want to satisfy your desires because that's what you're actually serving. And so you sleep together. That's a frightening place to be in, imitating a faith that you don't actually believe. Now, by the way, I'm not advocating moving in together either. If that's where you are, one of you needs to move out. You need to get married tomorrow, one or the other. Listen, maybe it's not like a blatant specific sin like that though for you, but what about, what about meeting with God yourself? Are you going through the outward visible motions of the faith, but missing, ignoring that communion with God that he calls each one of us to, where we open up his word, not just to check off a list that we've read some words, we believe the word is living and active and that his spirit is convicting us through it. And then we go to him in prayer and we say, God, what do you want me to believe? What promises are available to me here? Where do I need to change? Where do I need to repent, turn back to you? Father, here's what I need to depend on you today for. Is that you or are you just going through the motions? It is possible, probable even, that today there are people in here that your sin has built up such a callous heart towards the spirit of God that you can listen to me right now. You can nod your head, give one of them mm-hmm kind of things. Maybe even think, about somebody else that you know who needs to hear this, and all the while you are hiding sin from God. At least you think you are. Today is not about anyone else. In fact, it'd probably be best for you to think of this service like nobody else is even here. It's just you and God. This is God's word to you, and I'm just the messenger. Are you more consumed by what people think than what God thinks? Maybe today I am hoping and praying today is the day of freedom for you to stop putting on a front and finally allowing God in. Maybe the secrets of your heart can finally be laid bare today and you can experience the transforming grace of God instead of pretending to. Here's the second thing I'll say right into that. Second thing I think we learned from here is that you cannot manipulate the blessings of God. Ananias and Sapphira try to get the blessings of of generosity through appearing to be generous, but actually just being manipulative. They're trying to undermine God. And I can only say that sowing the seeds of empty, deceitful religious behaviors will yield corrupted, empty, corrupted fruit in your heart. God is not going to bless your deception. Listen, I don't preach on money probably enough around here. It's okay. The Lord provides, but I do want to make sure that here in Charlotte where money and appearances mean an awful lot, they are big idols of our day. Let me say this. Do not dare give any money to this church to, for any other motivation other than obedience to God, because he calls believers to give to the local church to carry out his mission. All right. If you give out of guilt, hoping you can buy God off, we don't want it. If you give hoping it will grant you special influence around here, we don't want it. That is an offense to God. And as a church, I would just rather be poor and holy than wealthy and compromised. Now listen, I know many of you don't give at all and you need to start giving, right? As an act of joyful faith and only is that. Others of you might give like this couple did, and you just got to go before the Lord and and confess to him. Don't lie to him. Dive into his love for you. Then give only as an act of joyful worship to your God. There's um, an old parable that 
Charles Spurgeon used to tell to his church about a king, a farmer, and a nobleman, right? He said there was this farmer, and he's out, and he has the best harvest he's ever had, and he harvests this carrot. The greatest one is huge, greatest one he's ever seen. He says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to give this to the king as a way to show my love for and appreciation for my king who has been such a good king to me. So he goes into the court. He presents, oh, good and gracious king, this is uh, my way. Please take this as a token of my thankfulness to you. You are a good king. Gives the carrot to the king. The king reads the farmer's heart and he says, thank you. I want to bless you. I want to give you 10 more acres of land for you to farm. Go um, and continue on. Thank you. And the farmer can't believe it. He's going away, actually rejoicing more than when he came in, right? Well, there's a nobleman who sees the transaction, and he says, well, if the king will give that for a carrot, imagine what he will give for a horse. So he goes out and gets his best horse, comes into the court and says, oh, king, good and you are a good and gracious king. Thank you for all you've done. I want to give you this horse as a token of my love and affection for you. And the king looks at him, reads his heart, and he says, thank you. And he dismisses him. And as the guy's walking off, you know, kind of confused and upset, the king stops him and he says, listen, the farmer gave because he loved the king. You gave because you loved yourself. And I'm not going to bless you trying to manipulate me. Is that where you are right now? Here's the next thing I'll say. Fear. This one's kind of a, maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Fear is a part of worshiping God. I think this is what makes this scene so difficult for many of us. You see it in verse 5. You see it again in verse 11. Fear comes upon everyone. We like a God that is, um, that is generous, that is loving. We kind of start to think of him as warm and cuddly. And God does reveal himself as a father who lovingly embraces us. But he's also revealed himself to be infinitely holy. And the only way that we can fully understand his love is through seeing how mighty and holy he is. To say it simply, a, a love for God, that love that you need that is so good for your soul, can only grow best through a fear of God. Now, I don't mean terror or panic. I mean that fear where the terror and panic have been removed and the only thing left is reverence and awe. Proverbs 14, 27 the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. That fear of the Lord, that's what turns people away from the snares of death, Solomon says. When we rightly see the Lord for who he is, this awe and wonder comes upon us that causes us to turn away. Is what Solomon calls the snares of death, the lies of the enemy, turns us away from our sin, turns us towards God. His holiness, instead of pushing us away, it actually draws us close. The presence of God, we see it, we're like, okay, Lord, and we saw, we've seen this time and time again in Acts. What must I do to be saved? I see God move. I see his holiness. I see my sin. What must I do to be saved? And then we hear that his holiness pours itself out in love towards us. That's what drew people in. If you keep going in, our, um, in Acts 5, down in verse 14, what you'll see is as a result of the fear of God, multitudes were added to their number. As a result of God striking two people dead on the spot, fear coming over everybody, people were drawn in. You see that? They were drawn in. One of my favorite book series is um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I love it. Read it all the time. I'm still trying to get my kids into it. But there's this scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, where Susan is talking with Mr. Beaver, 
I don't have time to do all their backstories, all right? But that's who he's talking to, okay? That's what's happening. And Mr. Beaver is educating her on Aslan, who represents God. Well, she thought Aslan was going to be a man, and Mr. Beaver tells her he's a lion. And she says, well, I shall fear, uh, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver, Beaver chuckles. says, <laughs> safe? Who says anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he is good. See, when you see God rightly, there is a fear that comes over you that simultaneously pushes you back because you see his holiness in your sin, but it also draws you close. It also draws you close. There's this power that you know you need, you know is good, and you know will bring about the transformation in your life that you so desperately long for. But it's a power you can't control. You can only kneel before the lion and trust that the lion will not destroy you because he said that he wouldn't. He said that he will give you that transforming power, that love that you so desperately need. Y'all, y'all know I love joking around. <laughs> I think you know that, but let's make sure we understand who we are gathering to worship when we gather as Mercy Church. We're gathering together in the presence of a holy God, so holy that our sin has no chance of surviving his presence, none. By his grace and only by his grace, he has allowed us to be safe. He has made us safe in his presence because he punished Christ for our sin. But that doesn't change how holy he is. And only when you understand his holiness can you appreciate his grace. So there's this little verse um, in Acts chapter nine. It's kind of sitting off by itself, almost like an interlude for Luke to tell us what was happening with the early church. It's 931. And it talks about living in this simultaneous reality of fear and comfort, fear of God and comfort of his presence with us. Look at this, 931. So throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, the church had peace and was strengthened living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, walking in those two realities, it increased in numbers. Fear of the Lord, which, which would push you away, but instead also draws you close and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, God's presence bringing those waves of refreshing over them, it increased in numbers because who would not want the assurance of forgiveness of sin life everlasting presence of God. Who would not want that? The church increases. Here's the last thing I'll say today. The last lesson for us is that God takes sin very seriously. Sometimes we mistake God's patience for being a lack of concern. Um, R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, God is, he said in his book, The Holiness of God, that I would commend to you um, coming out of here. God is indeed long-suffering patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are often shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance. That's what this morning is all about, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become bolder in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he is powerless to punish us. The supreme folly, the folly of Ananias and Sapphira, is that we think we will get away with our revolt. 
if Jesus really did do everything he did to save us, the lashings with the whip, the crown of thorns, the nails, the cross, his death, and we flippantly neglect that, what will it be like to stand before God one day? So let me ask you again, where are you hiding? Where are you being casual with your sin? Where is it that you would sh- you'd come in here and you'd hear me say, Jesus is Lord, and you'd raise your hands and you'd sing. You know, the way I've heard it say is Christians don't tell lies, they sing them, right? Every Sunday, where is that for you? What does the rest of your life say? You are, as one counselor told me, only as healthy as your secrets. And that's true today. You need to turn from them because, listen, <laughs> the amazing grace of God, the message today, this is a warning that you're hearing and your sin today is not fatal for you right now. It is your refusal to confess your sin that is fatal. But 1 John 1, 8, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's faithful and righteous because of what Christ did. That's what makes him righteous, just, faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The great irony of the gospel is that if you confess your sins, he will release you from them. But if you hold on to them and hide them and refuse to own them, then he will call you and hold you accountable for them. So maybe it's after our service today. We're going to get into a time of communion here in just a second, but maybe it's after our service today. You need to come and and talk to somebody. I'm going to lead you in a time of confession here in a moment, but don't let that be the last step. Let it be the first one that you then come and and confess your sin. Listen, don't let, I don't care if you've been in church for 50 years and you've been hiding it that whole time. Don't let what others might think about you stop stop you from letting God deal with you. The great news that we're gonna see in Acts is that the Lord kept moving. His grace was greater than their sin. He continued to move in the church. That's great news for us. As long as we are quick to confession, his grace is available to us in abundance. The path to seeing God bring an awakening to our city carried to the ends of the earth starts with an awakening in each one of us. And that always starts with the exposure of sin in the camp. God is already stirring this up. I've had more meetings in the last four weeks on confession of sin, exposure of sin in our church than I've had at any time period in the last four years. I do not think that that is a coincidence as I've prayed for and our elders have prayed for a spirit of refreshing to come over our church. It begins with the exposure and the ridding out, the rooting out and getting rid of sin in the camp. And so I hope that for you. Do not let your pride, do not let your pride stand between what God wants to do in you. Because that scary spot on the other side of that is that closeness to God that you might have been pretending to have, but can actually have today. Let me lead you in a time of prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, both of our locations? Let me guide you on this. This is your moment between you and God to just say, God, here is, here's what I'm dealing with. 
Here's what I've been hiding. I think it comes pretty quickly to mind. I don't think you need to think a lot about it for many of us. Some of you may need to take some time. God, where have I been hiding and I didn't even realize it? But where have you been holding on to sin? Hiding it from God. I want you to, you might even need to take a posture. We do this a lot in our, our times of prayer is just open your hand and say, God, let me, let me give this over to you. You might need to physically mimic that with your hands. Give that to him. Confess that to him. As you think through that, you continue in a posture of, of prayer between you and the Lord. And our teams are gonna come at both of our locations and guide us through a time of continued confession, repentance, and then communion together.